Welcome back to the Fordham IPLJ podcast. I'm your online editor, Christina Sauerborn. This week, staff correspondent Chloe Curtis sits down with Ron Spencer to discuss art forgery and the Nodler Gallery cases. Enjoy! I'm staff correspondent Chloe Curtis. This week, we're talking with Ron Spencer. Mr. Spencer is the chairman of the art law practice at the New York law firm of Carter, Ledyard, and Milburn. His practice focuses on art law, including the legal aspects of art authentication and advising buyers, sellers, and owners on due diligence with respect to provenance and attribution of works of art. He's the editor of Spencer's Art Law Journal and the author of The Expert Versus the Object, Judging Fakes and False Attributions in the Visual Arts. Thank you for joining us, Mr. Spencer. Thank you. Today we will be discussing the Nodler trial. Mr. Spencer, could you give us some background information on the case? Nodler Gallery, between 1994 and 2011, was under the direction of Ann Friedman, and it sold paintings that were later determined to be forgeries, and those works were said to be by artists like Motherwell, Pollock, Rothko, and others. Those paintings were purchased by Nodler from a lady but dealer from Long Island named Glafira Rosales, who in turn had obtained the fake paintings from a Chinese art forger who reportedly painted the forgeries in a garage in Queens. That's the background. Great. So in your edition of Spencer's Art Law Journal, entitled After the Nodler Trial, you discuss the Nodler litigation and what it means for future art buyers and sellers. You explain that in 2011, Pierre Lagrange, the buyer for a $15.3 million Jackson Pollock painting in 2007, sued Nodler and Ann Friedman for breach of warranty of authenticity and fraud. Subsequently, many other buyers of Rosales' paintings brought claims in the New York courts. The first of these claims to go to trial in February 2016 was brought by Domenico and Eleanor de Soleil, who purchased a Mark Rothko painting in 2004 from Nodler. But the de Soleil plaintiffs could not successfully claim breach of warranty. Why was this? Well, the de Soleil plaintiffs couldn't make a breach of warranty claim because they had purchased the painting, said to be a Rothko, which turned out to be a forgery. They couldn't make a warranty claim because the Uniform Commercial Code, which is in operation in most, or I think all states of the Union, and certainly in New York, has a four-year statute of limitations from the date of sale of tangible personal property, which art is. And so de Soles would have had to have brought their claim by the end of 2008. Um, and what do you need in order to prevail on a fraud claim? Well, fraud is not about negligence. Fraud is about a knowing misrepresentation in a sales context on the part of a seller. The seller knowingly misrepresents a fact about what's being sold. So it's not a question of, well, the seller should have known or shouldn't have known. It's a question of what was in the seller's head that the seller was actively defrauding the buyer. 
So you mentioned that the most astonishing aspect of this art world disaster might be the large number of sophisticated and experienced art experts who are fooled by the fake paintings. Can you expand a little bit on that and why you think they may have been duped? Well, these, my understanding from having talked with some of the experts and having seen their testimony, is these were brilliant fakes. They were just terrific fakes. If there's such a thing, yes, there is such a thing as a terrific fake. I mean, they were well done, that is to say. <laughs> and the experts didn't have much to go on. They had only their eyes to go on and their visual perception because there was no provenance. It came from an unidentified, quote, owner who wasn't didn't really exist. And there'd been no materials testing done from which the experts could profit so that the experts really were working from their visual perception. They applied their connoisseurship. And most of the experts thought these pieces were right because they were so good, so well done. So even the experts may have been duped. Uh, they were, in fact, duped, yeah. The experts made a mistake, but experts, like other professionals, make mistakes. Right. Doctors, lawyers, dentists, accountants, <laughs> investment advisors, they make mistakes. Right. They don't make them all the time, but they make them sometimes. So in the article that you wrote for the art newspaper, you identified seven red flags in the Nodler trial that should give dealers and sellers, as you call it, sleepless nights. Can you please talk a little about those seven red flags? Well, red flags, of course, is a indication that we should be concerned about the red flag being disclosed. And here, the red flags that the judge identified are found in, in many art sales. Thus, for example, undisclosed ownership history. Most, most old masters have no real provenance to them. And basically, the decision made with the old masters in most cases is, does it look of a quality that an old master would have produced, given old master? There's no provenance typically to go on. Sometimes there is, but usually there isn't. So undisclosed ownership history, it's, it's a reason to be concerned from the buyer's point of view, but there's lots of reasons to be concerned in many art world transactions. One red flag that I found particularly odd was the low purchase price that Nodler paid. The fact that Nodler paid a low purchase price relative to the market value and the price that they ultimately sold the piece for was said to be a red flag from which the jury could conclude that Nodler knew, because he was buying these pieces so cheaply, that it was selling fakes. But don't forget that these pieces had no identified source, that is to say, no ownership. They weren't in any catalog raisonne of a given artist, whether Rothko or Pollock or anybody, or Motherwell or anybody else. There was no provenance, as I say, and no one had ever, no art expert or connoisseur had ever written about any of these pieces to indicate that they thought that they were authentic. So there was reason for a low purchase price. Right. I mean, de Sole bought his piece, his so-called Rothko, for about 
little over $8 million. But if the piece had been in the Rothko catalog raisonné, or had been likely to be in the Rothko catalog raisonné, it should have been two or three times that. So, of course, a dealer buying a piece like that, without it being in the catalog raisonné, the dealer was going to know that the dealer would have to pay a low price because the dealer wasn't going to be able to sell it, resell it to a DeSole or any other buyer for anything like a market price for a piece that was in a catalog raisonné or upon which a, an expert had pronounced himself. So not only the dealer's low purchase price, but also what the seller paid for the purchase. I think in this case, the dealer Nodler was buying it from DeSole. She was paying... Nodler was paying a low price and then selling it to a DeSole or, or to a Lagrange or somebody else. For also a low price. Well, a relatively low price, which raises another issue. Mm -hmm. If you're buying a Rothko that normally would be uh, $20 million and you're buying it for $8 million, how so? Is it Christmas time in the, mm -hmm. in the buyer's household? Why is that? What does the buyer think he's getting? And that gets into the other aspect of what has to be proved for the buyer to prove fraud. That is that the buyer exercised due diligence. If you bought a Jackson Pollock painting that should be $25 million and you bought it for $5 million, the question right there as a buyer for your, your own buyer's due diligence, which is a requirement to prove your fraud claim, is how come, what did you think you were getting? for $5 million when the piece most likely should have been $25 million. So price on both sides, on the buyer's side, and on the seller's side, or the gallery selling, and on the buyer's side, who bought from the gallery, doesn't indicate fraud, but it indicates a red flag caution. And that leads into the defendant's Nodler and Ann Friedman right. cited the ACA Galleries case in their argument, which found for the art seller on the grounds that the buyer could have consulted with the Milton Avery Foundation for its opinion and authenticity, but the buyer chose not to do so. However, Judge Gardefee felt that these two cases were not comparable. How do you feel about buyers relying on galleries and auction houses as reputable sources when purchasing artworks in the secondary market? Well, as I say, in order to make a fraud claim, the buyer must show that the buyer exercised reasonable due diligence. Somebody comes to you and says, I have this bridge I want to sell. You have to use your own common sense and some research to say that bridge that goes over to Brooklyn that can't be owned by the guy who wants to sell it to me, right? So that you cannot come to a court and say, I was defrauded if you didn't do some basic due diligence on your purchase. And what due diligence did the DeSoles do? Well, the DeSoles did admitted that they did very little. The DeSoles stated quite candidly, which was the case, in fact, that they relied upon the reputation of a reputable art gallery, Nodler, and they didn't feel it was necessary to do any due diligence beyond buying from a reputable art gallery. But that definition of due diligence has never been the law of New York. So the DeSoles really didn't do enough due diligence in this case. Not in my view, but in the judge's view, they had. 
How do you feel that due diligence should change or to what extent it should be required when art advisors act as an intermediary between the buyer and the gallery? Well, that's an interesting question because theoretically, or not theoretically, as a practical matter, the buyer who retains a, a an expert art advisor is retaining the art advisor to advise the buyer, in many cases, on the due diligence that the buyer is supposed to be doing. And part of the due diligence is normally, if you hire an advisor to advise you on a purchase, that's your due diligence, assuming that the advisor is, look, you've asked them to look at the right things. Now, in the DeSole case, uh, the art advisor was not required by the buyer to do any research on authenticity, no research on the provenance, just to advise on the fairness of the price. That's a, that's a little a little unusual in it, to restrict the art advisor's role in that way. Normally, you would say to the art advisor, hey, I'm paying you a certain amount of money. I'd like you to, if there's an issue of authenticity, I'd like you to look into that. If there's an issue of title, I'd like you to look into that. If there's an issue of provenance, I'd like you to look into that. And that's the true in most cases. Now, if the advisor does, in fact, look into the, those questions for the buyer in a reasonable, reasonably researched way, then the buyer has gone a long way towards satisfying his obligation to do due diligence, to do reasonable diligence on the purchase. Don't forget where we're talking here about the two elements that a buyer has to show to prove fraud. One, an intentional misrepresentation upon the seller, and then the buyer has to show that the buyer did reasonable diligence within what the buyer could reasonably be expected to do on, on the purchase itself. In short, the buyer just can't go into these transactions and say, oh, I was defrauded. The courts say to the buyer, wait a minute, what did you do to protect yourself? Right. So the DeSoles were really only relying on the gallery's reputation. That's correct. To prove authenticity. And how much information about provenance do you think a gallery or an auction house should provide for a buyer? Well... Ideally, from the buyer's point of view, as much as possible. There's always an issue of how much is available, how expensive it is to fill in the blanks and provenance. Sometimes you just can't fill in those blanks. Sometimes the information is incorrect and you can't verify it. So the buyer should always try to get as much information as he possibly can. And lately, many I've been seeing many sales contracts where the buyer says to the seller in the contract, I want you to warrant to me that you've told me everything you know about authenticity, about provenance, everything you know, you, the seller, know about the painting. Now, that's a dangerous thing for a seller to warrant because it may be with all honest intentions, the seller has left something out because A, because the seller forgot or because the seller knew about it but didn't think it was important, or the seller thought it was important but the seller didn't think that the information, the negative information was accurate. There's all kinds of reasons why the seller could not or would not have provided additional information to the buyer. Questioning authenticity of a work, 
at what point do forensics become a factor in terms of testing the paint to make sure that it's actually authentic? At the end, more or less, it's the third and last part of the authentication process. Because after all, you can't go around testing the paint on every piece you look at that you think you might be interested in as a buyer. So first, an expert, a connoisseur, has to decide that the piece is right or is likely to be right and that the provenance is is likely to be accurate. And only then, only then, if those answers turn out to be yes, would you begin considering what's available by way of materials testing. So it does seem commonplace for dealers to consult experts when the authenticity of an artwork is in question. And in the Nodler trial, Friedman compiled a list of people who had viewed the paintings and shared that list with De Sole. What role do you think that experts such as Christopher Rothko, for example, played in the Nodler trial? Well, in many cases, the experts... I mean, Christopher Rothko was came to Nodler and looked at the piece before the sale. And his testimony at, at his deposition and at the trial was that he said to Nodler that the piece was beautiful, but that at the trial, he didn't authenticate works of his father. And everybody accepted that. So the question is, what did he intend by saying the piece was beautiful? And what could, what could Nodler have said to a buyer about Christopher Rothko's appellation, the piece is beautiful. Nodler never said that these people who view, these experts who viewed the works authenticated the work. They provided a list of people who had viewed the works. And it was always open to the desoles of this world to call those people and say, did you see the work and what did you think? Now, the, people, the experts didn't have to respond, but, they, but there was no attempt on the part of the desoles in this example, for example, to check with the experts who were said to have viewed the work. So had there been an expert in this case who authenticated the paintings, how much liability do you feel an expert who authenticates works that are then found to be forgeries how much liability do you feel that they're responsible for? Well, an expert view about the authenticity of a painting is an opinion. Just like when you go to a doctor and you ask, what, what, what's wrong with my arm? He says, in my opinion, it's nothing to worry about. Or in my opinion, it's, it is something to worry about. If the doctor is negligent, or if the lawyer giving you an opinion is negligent in giving you his opinion, there's a claim for damages. Now, in that case, the damages could have potentially have been against the art expert if he was negligent. Just being wrong doesn't give somebody a, a claim against the person who is wrong. Mm -hmm. You have to be negligent as well. But typically, the art expert can protect himself by saying, I'm not saying anything unless I get a hold harmless from the person who could be the buyer or from the person asking me to authenticate. And that should be that should become standard practice in the art world. And unfortunately, it's not standard practice in the art world. When the auction houses go to experts on any given artist, the experts should ask those auction houses for an indemnification in case the buyer comes back to the expert and says, you made a mistake and you were negligent. And the auction house should hold the expert harmless. But so far, the auction houses have not moved in that direction. And is that because the auction houses don't want to face any potential losses? That's correct. 
they want to sell, but they don't want to face the, they want to hear the expert's opinion, but they don't want to pay for the, for the expertise. Cases of claim. Maybe they don't really trust all their experts' opinions either. Well, then they shouldn't be selling it. So you mentioned that numerous art sales of authentic pieces will often contain some of the same factual elements that were identified in the Nodler forgery sales. What elements are you referring to? Well, let's see. Buy, buy low, sell high. Undisclosed ownership history. Uh, the lack of provenance. And then there's always the big issue, negative undisclosed information. There's always going to be some undisclosed information, intentionally or not. So this undisclosed information is... Is a, is a problem because, as I say, there's, there's always undisclosed information. And if you allow a buyer to res, rescind a transaction based upon undisclosed information, you're really affecting the stability of purchases and sales of art. So you've got to be careful. It's nice to protect the buyer, but you don't want to protect, in general, buyers at the risk of unhinging lots of art transactions. So it does seem that there's a higher standard for prestigious galleries, which you talk about in your Red Flag article. And, it, of course, the de Soles here really relied on the Nodler's reputation in order to authenticate their painting. How do you feel that this could possibly be remedied in going forward? Well, I, d I don't know that it can, and that's the problem with it. Are you going to have... One standard for a, quote, prestigious gallery and a different standard for a slightly less prestigious gallery? How could, you, how could one operate like that in terms of applying the due diligence requirement mm -hmm. to a buyer? So it does seem that fraud claims can become very expensive. And certain authentication boards, like the Warhol Authentication Board, Jackson Pollock, Authentication Board, Keith Haring, pa Picasso, and Basquiat have dissolved as a result of expensive legal cases. Right. So without these authentication boards, how do you feel that that impacts a buyer's ability to authenticate an artwork? Well, it's harder, but it's not hardly, it's not impossible. I mean, if the buyer wants to do dil do dil check with an expert if the buyer will indemnify the expert if the against any claims of the expert's wrong the expert should be willing to talk to the buyer the potential buyer and i think that's i think the possibility of indemnification of the experts is becoming more widespread uh, i don't think insurance is going to be too helpful there for the experts but I think any expert who wants to be consulted and, have, and get his expertise out there to a legitimate potential buyer who would say, I'll give you my opinion, but I, I want you to indemnify me, that is to say, hold me harmless against somebody suing me. So in 2014, the New York legislature passed a bill making lawsuits against art authentication more difficult. Do you feel that this was helpful? And do you think that the legislature can do anything moving forward to try and protect the authenticity of artworks and authenticators giving their opinion? I don't think that particular piece of legislation is going to be helpful here. Um, there were originally some ideas connected with that legislation that might have been helpful. Without going into the details of that, that legislation has not advanced 
the ball down the field. What do you feel that the impact of the Nodler trial will be on future art sales? Well, the Nodler decision, trial and decision, makes it easier for a disappointed buyer to get to a jury on a claim, on a fraud claim. And once matters go to a jury, or are about to go to a jury, the case gets, typically the cases get will get settled, because no one wants the uncertainty of a jury trying to figure out what was in the seller's head, that is to say, whether the seller knew that they were selling a fake. So it's going to open up, in my view, there will be a lot more fraud claims. Also, fraud has a longer statute of limitations than the four-year warranty. It's six years or two years from the time the fraud should have been discovered. And so the statute of limitations is less of an impediment in a fraud claim. So we're going to have, my prediction is, more fraud claims against sellers from disappointed buyers. The Fordham Intellectual Property Media and Entertainment Law Journal is a publication staffed by the students of Fordham Law School. Our faculty moderators are Professors Mark Patterson and Joel Reidenberg. Our Volume 28 Editor-in-Chief is Alex Kirk. Our Managing Editor is Matt Hershkowitz. Our mixing and audio production this week is by Kate Riley. Special thanks to staff correspondent Chloe Curtis, and a huge thank you to Ron Spencer for being part of this episode. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. If you liked what you heard, please rate us and give us a review. It lets us know how we're doing and really helps our visibility as we continue to grow year after year. For more information about Fordham IPLJ, please visit our website at www.fordhamiplj.org. You can follow us on Twitter at at Fordham IPLJ or on Facebook.com slash Fordham IPLJ. Additionally, you can support Fordham IPLJ and unlock exclusive bonus episodes by visiting patreon.com slash Fordham IPLJ and becoming a patron for just $1. I'm your online editor, Christina Sauerborn. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.